Well, thank you for your singing. I enjoy singing with you all week after week. I was actually out of town this week at a place that had an auditorium probably twice this size, and they did not sing as good as you sing. <laughs> and I include myself in that. I was part of the problem, I guess. But you do, I love how this church sings, and I think that's reflective of what's going on in your souls. And so that's a blessing. Please turn your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 4. We'll be looking at this entire chapter this morning. I've had several different responses to people, uh, from people to me behind the scenes, ranging from Ecclesiastes is like one of my favorite books to why in the world are you preaching from Ecclesiastes? (laughs) The wisdom literature of Scripture has been of special and even growing interest to me as I have navigated the 52 years of life God has given me thus far. In particular, uh, Job, Psalms, and Ecclesiastes. There's a study for you have a unique way of speaking God's truth and infusing peace into my life. And so, that is in part the reason for Ecclesiastes chapter 4 today. D.A. Carson says this of Ecclesiastes, many Christians read Ecclesiastes and just think this book is a real downer. However, In the ancient Near East, there was a tradition within wisdom literature of a style which may be called pessimism literature, which goes back to at least 2000 BC in Egypt and Mesopotamia. Yet unlike other examples of pessimism literature which are bleak and sensual without hope, such as the Babylonian work The Dialogue of Pessimism, where suicide is the only solution, Ecclesiastes holds the possibility of joy, faith, and assurance of God's goodness. And so Ecclesiastes probably has an unfair reputation. In the end, it is not a pessimistic book. It is a book that has a unique way of pointing us to God and ultimately to the gospel. We will read the scripture in just a moment, but I'd like to take some time here at the outset to orient us to the big picture, if you will, of this extraordinary book. So a brief three-point introduction as we consider the book as a whole. You, You will need to understand these three concepts if you're going to understand the book of Ecclesiastes. So number one, you need to understand under the sun. We could maybe put parenthetically there the the physical, the the normal, the beautiful, the terrible. The phrase under the sun is used 29 times in Ecclesiastes, and the modern Western mind reads the words under the sun and thinks spatially. In other words, we split the world into below and above, and therefore at first glance, we likely understand the meaning to be that under the sun everything is a certain way, But above the sun, it's different. But we should actually think about this more chronologically and not spatially. In the ancient world and frequently in Scripture, the sun marked time more than space. 
Bible scholar David Gibson says that the phrase under the sun refers to a now rather than to a there. Under the sun points to these days now. As long as the earth lasts, in this period of time, this is just how things are. One day, the sun will be no more. We will live in a new creation. But for now, the teacher is simply commenting on what this temporal life is like. We live under the sun today, but we will live in glory tomorrow. So under the sun is life as we know it. In other words, good things happen to bad people. Bad things happen to good people. The good, the bad, the ugly, the horrible, and everything in between, it just is. That is life under the sun. You need to understand that phrase. The second thing you need to understand is the word vanity. In parentheses there, I would put this, like temporal, ephemeral, momentary, passing. The word used in Ecclesiastes and elsewhere in the Old Testament means uh, breathe or breath, breeze, mist, or vapor. This means that in using this word nearly always, the teacher of Ecclesiastes is pointing to how life comes and goes in the blink of an eye. And he is exploring what that feels like when one considers both all the beauty and all the brokenness of this world. And so we must therefore consider life's repetitiveness, life's brevity, life's elusiveness, the quickness of things to slip through our fingers, and all of that in light of an eternity belonging to a God who will judge the living and the dead. One of my favorite explanations of this word vanity is soap bubbles. I know that's not very theological, especially if you're to read it. Soap bubbles, soap bubbles, all the soap bubbles, right? It's hard to read that without smiling. This is serious stuff. But it is a good example of what this word means. You know, the first time a child figures out soap bubbles, it's pretty entertaining, isn't it? Those soap bubbles go out and they grab it, and then the bewilderment, which is like, where did it go? That's vanity. It's fleeting. It's there and it's gone. So don't laugh at them too hard. We're a lot like them. Smoke is a good picture of this word as well. The book of Ecclesiastes is a meditation on what it means for our lives to be like a whisper spoken in the wind, here one minute and carried away forever the next. So under the sun and vanity, and then thirdly, you need to understand this phrase, fear God. And in parentheses there, we could say the spiritual, the eternal. And so in light of the above, in light of life under the sun and and vanity, the most important thing that we can do as we make our way through this transitory and quickly disappearing life is to prepare ourselves for eternity, to prepare ourselves to see God. And one of the primary ways we do that is by valuing and cultivating relationships with fellow image bearers of God. And this brings us to chapter 4 of Ecclesiastes. 
This chapter gives us some interesting questions to ask of ourselves and to ask of each other. The preacher offers a whole new way of living, a way of living that radically challenges the individualism especially prevalent in Western civilization, like in this room. This way of living requires a change in the orientation of our hearts and the way we see the world. He implies a question that, if answered correctly, can actually free us from ourselves. And it's it's the question is not how am I doing, but rather how are we doing? You see the the difference? You see, in, 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 in our world, we think about ourselves far too much. We need to be thinking more in terms of we, not I, not me. The preacher here is trying to show us a better way to live. He's adding more variety to his description of the wise and faithful life lived under the sun that he has started in chapters 1 through 3. But he will also remind us of the frustration that we will face along the way. So the big picture is beginning to look like this. Neither the world, nor your own life, nor your relationships are completely within your control. We are creatures, not creator. The world we dwell in and the very lives we enjoy come from God's hand. These are gifts of His grace which we have not earned nor do we deserve. But here we are. And so the message of Ecclesiastes is embrace life, but live it out before God with reverence and obedience and share what you have with others. And so let's look at this text now. I want to read the entire chapter, and then we'll dig into it. Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead, more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not yet seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. And I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. Again, I saw vanity under the sun, one person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity in an unhappy business. Two are better than one. Because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. 
For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led, yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after wind. This text presents us with two straightforward responses as we navigate a relationally broken world. And those two responses are fatalistic frustration and faithful friendship. Fatalistic frustration and faithful friendship. Let's look first at fatalistic frustration. What does this look like? Thus far in the book, the preacher has referred to wickedness. Uh, you, you'll see that in chapters 1 through 3 where he'll say things and he'll say, and this too is vanity, and this too is vanity. He's just this list, but it's very general in, in, in chapters 1 through 3. And now he gets specific, and it is not pretty. It is disturbing. The preacher notes specific situations that if we are not careful... In how we respond to them, it will lead us to live lives characterized by fatalistic frustration. And so let me point out to you the things that he notes. Immediately in verse 1, he notes the oppressed and their lack of comforters. Not only the oppressed, but they lack comforters. He laments the lack of justice in the world. Back in chapter 3, he starts this topic. Kind of the end of chapter 3, starting in verse 16, he's lamenting the lack of justice in the world in a broad way. Now he's, he's getting more specific, and he's reflecting on the oppressed, and he's specifically disturbed by the fact that they have no one to comfort them. He says that twice, by the way. You see that in the text. This is Hebrew poetry. It's, it's used for emphasis. And, and so he says that twice because he's emphasizing this. There is no comfort for them. It's bad enough to be oppressed. It's even worse when there's no one to comfort you. In the Bible, oppression involves but is not limited to the following. Cheating one's neighbor out of something. Making unjust gain. Abusing power. Neglecting or harming the vulnerable, denying people of rights and justice. These are the oppressed. Consider what we could call the raw deal. These poor people have been dealt. The tears of the oppressed. And by the way, these oppressors even double down uh, later in chapter 5 and verse 8. Let let me summarize what that verse says. It basically says this, "'Don't be too upset.'" When you see the poor kicked around and justice and right violated all over the place, exploitation filters down from one petty official to another. There's no end to it and nothing can be done about it. It's horrible. I think we all know what that's like. There's something wrong with oppression. This goes against some of our strongest instincts, by the way. Think about uh, some of our most simple uh, children's stories. This, this might give you a window into how I entertain myself. 
I, I am totally fine with the fact that Humpty Dumpty will never be put back together again. Okay? Because bad things happen. As far as I know, nobody pushed Humpty Dumpty. He fell. I'm okay. It's, it's bad, right? It, but but I'm, I, I'm okay with it, right? However, I am not okay if one of Cinderella's sisters steals the glass slipper and actually gets the prince. Seriously, I, I have big problems with that. I think you would too. Like, and you know why that is? Is because they oppressed her. There's something within us that cries out and says, no way. Okay, sorry, Humpty Dumpty, but no way, Cinderella sisters. You do not get that slipper. You do not get the prince. Cinderella does. You see, we have this visceral reaction to oppression because these things leave the oppressed in tears. Oppression is awful. Consider these horrible words, genocide, gendercide. For, for all of our talk of women's rights, we live in a world that it treats female infants horribly. Gendercide, killing the unborn, sex trafficking, terrorist attacks, sex abuse, child abuse, and we could go on. The oppression should stir within us the justice of God. And yet again, the main concern here, the thing that is really disturbing him, is that there's nobody there to comfort them. And he further points out that they are isolated. Their isolation increases their pain. They have no one to speak for them. They have no voice. And they have no one to comfort them. They are seemingly in a perpetual solitary confinement. And if you know anything about solitary confinement, you know how horrible this is. And so the darkness of oppression leads the preacher to make this sad conclusion. And this is a very, very sobering thing. He concludes that death is preferable or to have never been born. Whatever the case, he's saying to not exist is preferable to exist in this type of a world. And so I ask you, because I ask myself the same question, does that sound too dark for you? Like, like should people who believe in God even like say things like that? This could be a literary tool of overstatement to make a point. It's sometimes utilized in Hebrew poetry, but I don't think that's what's going on here. Because the language is emphatic. The ESV says it this way, I read it already, but just to reiterate, and I thought the dead who were already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. The original language is actually even a little stronger. It's, it's like he's, he, he, the, the word praise is in there. I praise the dead. You know, like, like they're, they're, they're so much better off. One translation says it this way, I praised and thought more fortunate those who have been long dead than the living who are still alive. And so what do we do when we face these dark truths? Well, I would say we can't give in to a simplistic view of life's tragedies. And, and just say that, yeah, well, you know what, this is what happens in a world without God. Be, be warmed and filled. 
We need to come to terms honestly with the world as it really is. And sometimes it is really dark. I could literally give example after example. Not not from this congregation, by the way. You You could do this too. Of unspeakable situations where innocent people suffered in unimaginable ways. But allowing ourselves to dwell on such atrocities would indeed become unbearable. Still yet, as believers, we must never minimize suffering when relating the gospel of Jesus to a world of pain. The gospels speak of Jesus groaning at the brokenness of creation, both physically and spiritually. It's a delicate road to walk with those who are suffering in the ways the preacher speaks of here. Yes, the gospel is glorious. And our ultimate hope is rooted in the promise that our God will make all things new. Hallelujah. But be patient with those who suffer. And we must not defame the name of Jesus by preaching a false gospel of health and wealth. We should remember that following Jesus is marked by taking up our cross. And some people bear a heavy cross. Most of us simply are not used to staring this type of oppression and pain in the face. It's uncomfortable to deal with Scripture like this. And others, examples like Jeremiah 20 and verse 18, Why did I come out from the womb to see toil and sorrow and spend my days in shame? It is uncomfortable to deal with people who are in dark places emotionally and spiritually, perhaps of their own making, Perhaps because of external circumstances, perhaps a combination of both. Whatever the case, they need godly friends. They need loyal family. They need caring community. And they need to be reminded of their comforting Savior or introduced to Him. He goes on to talk about our toil and our motivations in verses 4 through 8. This next thing that he sees, he talks about everything he sees. I saw oppression. And now he sees work. Our motives and our relationships are considered in conjunction with our work, or the, the word used in this translation is toil. And he mentions four topics related to toil. Envy, laziness, contentment, and greed. In verse 4, he deals with envy. Probably a good question we could ask ourselves is, why do we work so hard? Why do we do what we do? We can have twisted motivations. Are you driven by rivalry, power, status? Solomon sees the desire to outdo others as the motive for many. When you see someone successful, Or they have something that you want. Job, situation, abilities, girlfriend, boyfriend. What is your response? This is a temptation even among Christians. Even among those in ministry. James, we refer to this in James 3.16 as jealousy and selfish ambition. And he refers to it as a vile practice. Some checkpoints here. When we envy someone... 
we usually do at least three things. One, we embellish. In other words, you overestimate. And, and, and that leads you to wanting something that may not, in the end, be as good as you think it is. It, it, we're not satisfied, so we embellish what we think we want. Perhaps more dark is we demonize. It, it, it can turn wicked. You hate the person you envy. You criticize or attack them. You gossip about them. You rejoice in their downfall. That's just evil. When your joy is tied to the downfall of others, that's evil. We compare or compete. You want to beat them. You want to keep up with them. If it is impossible to rejoice at their success, then we have a problem. And yet, I think we all know it's easy and dangerous to live an envy-driven life instead of a Christ-driven life. And so the alternative here is when you see a Christian brother or sister, someone working skillfully and faithfully, we should rejoice in their success. We should learn from them. And then we should go fulfill our jobs for God's glory and for the good of others. Rivalry will not produce healthy relationships. Proverbs 14.30 says this, Envy makes the bones rot. Rivalry and envy will not make you a good friend or a comforter to the oppressed because you are obsessed with yourself and outdoing others. And so, yes, we should work hard out of love for God and for people, not out of envy and rivalry. It's his first observation. His second observation is kind of the opposite, perhaps. It's laziness. So, you could just not be driven at all. He, he shows us a picture of a, a, a sluggard, a lazy person. And, and you know, this, this one's nuanced, or, 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 or not nuanced, but, but uh, maybe more difficult to see. It, it may actually look good, at least initially, because this is someone who, at the very least, withdraws from society, kind of like burying your talent in the, in the, in the dirt. So, uh, the danger here, though, is this, that this person, you know, realizes, hey, I can't be the best, so I'm not going to do anything. I'm taking my ball, and I am going home. And, and it may be couched in like a false humility, but at the end of the day, this is laziness. This is refusing to work. Descriptive language here. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. It's self-cannibalism. It's, it's de- destruction from within. There's no food in the cupboard, so he's gnawing away at his own knuckles. Workaholics are often told that they should spend less time in the office. Perhaps the sluggard should spend at least some time in the office. The next picture he shows is actually a positive one. Uh, as you read through Ecclesiastes, you're thankful for these glimpses of of positive, that point us to Christ. Contentment in verse 6, better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after the wind. So here's the better solution. This is the wise person. This is how the wise person works. A handful of quietness is better than two handfuls of greed. This is a beautiful picture, and I believe a subtle point of emphasis in this Chapter, the word that is translated there for quietness is, is an important word in this chapter. It represents contentment. It, it, it represents a calmness of the soul. And so this person works and they're industrious, but they also enjoy life and serve others. 
So two hands represent, if, if we're using two hands, right? Two hands full of toil and a striving after the wind. It, it represents the attempt to grab as much as possible. I think the best example that comes to my mind of this is a piñata. You know where I'm going with that? <laughs> I don't even need to say anything else. <laughs> when that thing breaks, the dads are going in with both hands, right? No. <laughs> Perhaps you could also think of Black Friday. The workaholic is weighed down with everything and cannot rest. He is striving after the wind. The picture of contentment is in contrast to the clamorous noise of constantly accumulating more. We live in the 21st century. We have electricity, and so you can, you can be doing stuff 24-7. When we lived in New York City, it is ab- absolutely true that it was busier outside of our apartment at midnight than it was at noon. So you can. You can end up with two handfuls, but that's a foolish life. The implication here is that one hand is for work and industry and vocation, and the other hand is for relationships. And this balance in life provides contentment. This doesn't mean that every day is a vacation, which is kind of a funny thing to say in Florida. You need to be industrious and productive. That's one hand. But the other hand is for people. It's for generosity. It's for quietness. It's for rest. It's for family. It's to enjoy life. One hand is to produce and the other is to invest in others. To reach out to others. To put my arm out to the hurting. To receive God's love from others. To make memories with friends and with family. And to do this, we should ultimately value rest and peace and people over wealth and achievement. For those things connect us to our Creator. The next picture he shows us in verses 7 and 8 is greed. And we get an unfortunate picture here of someone consumed with their work and with their bank account. Greed and frantic busyness has led to isolation and emptiness. You can picture this compulsive moneymaker who doesn't stop to ask or, in fact, tries not to ask, for whom am I toiling? Why am I living like this? He's rich, but he's alone. He obsesses over emails and meetings and reports, always thinking about the next thing. This person has no space for relationship. This person has money and achievements, but no family or friends. One commentator has said of this passage, it is possible to know the price of everything, but the value of nothing. Don't be a greedy workaholic. Relationships are more important than achievements. Money and achievement won't satisfy because you need friends. And... You will never have enough. You will never be satisfied. Regarding the latter, it is important to remember that one of the ways you kill greed, that that desire for more, is by giving money and stuff away. Be generous. Invest in others. Give gladly, generously, regularly. And you will find great joy. There is great value in life 
when we are in relationship with people and we work not just for ourselves, but for the good of others. This is living in light of eternity as opposed to the temporal fleeting, and it will spare us from approaching life with fatalistic frustration. I'm going to transition now to faithful friendship. In his book, Civility, Dr. Stephen Carter talks about the illusion that we are traveling alone. He notes the significant difference between traveling by train with a group of people and traveling by car, where we are much more likely to be alone. He writes, in the middle of the 19th century, there were no automobiles, but America was giddy over railroads. For the first time in human history, horseback was not the fastest way to travel. Everybody suddenly had some place to go, and all the trains were full of people. But only the wealthy could afford to travel alone. So most people bought a ticket and sat down in a train car full of strangers. And they traveled so far together, packed shoulder to shoulder, so everybody had to behave, or the ride would become intolerable. Everyone followed the rules for the sake of the fellow passengers, and they did so, as one historian has noted, out of a spirit of self-denial and the self-sacrifice of one's own comfort for another's. But nowadays, we have automobiles, and we travel both long and short distances surrounded by metal and glass in the illusion that we are traveling alone. This illusion has seeped into every crevice of our public and private lives, persuading us that sacrifices are no longer necessary. If railroad passengers a century ago knew the journey would be impossible unless they considered the comfort of others more important than their own, our spreading illusion has taken us in the other direction. Hear this phrase, we care less and less about our fellow citizens because we no longer see them as our fellow passengers. Instead, we may actually see them as obstacles or competitors, or we may not see them at all. Jesus said in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 12, verses 29 through 31, the most important commandment is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Faithful friendship. I actually initially wanted to use the word companionship here because I thought it was more meaningful. And then I pulled out my dictionary. (laughs) It's not. You you know what's happened? Is Facebook friends has ruined our definition of friend. Here's, Here's the definition, the primary definition of friend in Webster's Dictionary. One attached to another by affection or esteem. Faithful friendship. Friendship and its blessings. This is verses 9 through 12, sharing, working, and producing in, in the first part of this text, verse 9. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. So success comes through cooperation. If you want to make more money, do it with someone else. 
At least you have someone to share it with. You can share the joy and the sorrow, the compliments and the critiques, the good days and the bad days, the profits and the losses. This is good. Verse 10, faithful friendship, we, we help one another. If they fall, one will lift up his fellow, but woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. I was actually a little nervous last night. Trish and Jenna flew back in and they flew into Miami and I was a little concerned for their safety. But we don't often feel that way, I don't think, in the world in which we live. They did. <laughs> like, like traveling in those days was hazardous. Like, like if you fell... You, you better hope someone comes along. Uh, no iPhones. It was hazardous to travel, especially overnight. A fall by yourself could be fatal. And there were other physical dangers, animals and such. But we, we need this not just for physical help. We also need friends to pull us up out of the pit of despair and sin Galatians chapter 6, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. So faithful friendship, what does it look like? Well, it's sharing, it's working, producing together, it's helping one another in the realm of of physical and and emotional protection. And then thirdly, it's comforting or or giving emotional support Uh, could be in view here as well. Verse 11, again, if two lie together, they keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? Now, again, I must note that it's hard for us to understand this in southwest Florida where I don't think it has been under 74 degrees in six months. <laughs> and I went to Kansas City hoping this, this week hoping to get some nice cool weather and it was boiling hot. But you know there are some places in the world, there are some places in this country where when it gets cold enough, if you don't have someone else to cuddle up to, you will die. You will die. And that's what this is talking about. This is talking about survival. Again, kind of this idea of travelers on cold winters, winter nights. The picture is, is trying to survive by sleeping close to one another so that you can stay warm. It's absolutely survival. It could be alluding to more than just the physical act of staying warm, though. It could again refer to giving emotional support to a friend who is experiencing grief or adversity or great temptation. And I just throw this in here. Technology may aid a relationship, but it can't replace it. There are times where you need to be present. The sharing, working, producing, helping, comforting, giving emotional support, and then protecting Verse 12 there, and though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Uh, the, the picture here is that, that, you know, one-on-one you have a chance. You get past that, you, you might want to have some people with you. It's better to have a traveling partner. There's safety in numbers. And again, there are such beautiful spiritual implications of this. Even if you don't travel, you will face temptations and trials along the journey of life. 
And how good it is to know that we aren't alone. We have Christ, yes, but we also have His people. And one of the emphasis of this, emphases of this passage is community and, and relationship. Sharing, working, producing, helping, comforting, giving emotional support, protecting. This is quite different than the individualism that pervades Western culture. We need to help protect and give comfort. And we need to receive it. That might be the hardest part for some of us. Bonhoeffer said this, the physical presence of other Christians is a source of incomparable joy and strength to to the believer. The physical presence. So we have two options here in this chapter. We have kind of like this, this fatalistic frustration. We're going to navigate this life kind of on our own and just dealing with the blows that come, or we have faithful friendship, relationship, community. There's an interesting proverbial truth that closes out this chapter, verses 13 through 16. I read it already. Let me, let me just kind of summarize that here. Um, here's how I would summarize it. A poor child with some wisdom is better off than an old but foolish king who thinks he knows everything. I saw a youth just like this start with nothing and go from rags to riches, and I saw everyone rally to the rule of this young successor to the king. Even so, the excitement died quickly. The throngs of people soon lost interest. Can't you see this is vanity? I'm trying to grab the wind. And so this proverb seems to maybe summarize this section by Reminding us that even earthly kings know the pain and frustration of vanity. This proverb is yet another example of the value of we over me. If life is all about my reputation, my kingdom, the applause will never be enough. And ultimately, if our hope is in the things of this world, we will find ourselves continually disappointed no matter how high up the food chain we go. In conclusion, Ecclesiastes looks back to Genesis. It, it does. It, it finds much of its material, it seems, in Genesis. And so when we think back to Genesis, we think of like God creating, and we think of community created, but then we think of community lost with a hat tip to Milton, and then community regained. Community didn't start with man. It started with God, Father, Son, and Spirit. We are simply a reflection of the triune God. We are image bearers created for community that glorifies God. And the fall changed everything. Community lost, relationships broken. And yet the problem beneath the problem in our world, in our, in our relationships, is that our relationship with God is broken. Everything else is simply a manifestation of that problem. The preacher has observed and noted specific breakdowns that simply reflect the problem that humanity is out of fellowship with God. We've broken God's law. 
And, and by the way, six of the Ten Commandments are with regard to taking advantage of fellow image bearers. Honor your father and mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not covet. All of these things that remind us that we are broken, we are fallen, we need a Savior. And God is good, and He is gracious, and He has provided a Savior. He has provided a a, a way for community to be regained. I, I read from John's Gospel, chapter 15 and verse 12, This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, He may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the good news that Jesus lived the life that we could never live, died the death that we deserve to die, conquered death, rose again, and is coming again. And if I rest in that truth, I understand the beauty and power of forgiveness and redemption and relationship. If you can live in this world in such a way that the person or people beside you, your friend, your spouse, your children, your brother, your sister, the people God has put in your path, If those people are your working concern and your dominant focus, then you will find happiness. It's interesting, we talk about delighting in Christ by serving His bride and advancing the truth in love. So if your head hits the pillow each night with thoughts of how you might help and serve someone else and how you can be a certain kind of person for them, then you will find a gladness and contentment that nothing else can match. We were created for community. Just some quick application. As we consider this text, we would do well to ask ourselves some questions. Where am I going with my life? What am I doing with my life? These questions seem to dominate the modern mind and beg answers from us all the time. And I would submit that we need to consider those questions in the context of community. And so, as as you leave here today, I would ask you to consider two questions. The first is this, who is caring for you? Who is caring for you? And what I mean by that is, who is caring for your soul? Now, be be careful how you answer that question because the next one's going to be more difficult. That question is this, who are you caring for? Who 
We have 258 members here at Faith Bible Church. And I think it becomes more and more challenging as we grow to truly care for one another's souls. So I think at times it can be good to take a step back and consider, okay, who, who is caring for me? Maybe, maybe the problem is not necessarily with other people. Maybe I am not inviting people into my life to care for me. Maybe I haven't built relationships and then who are we caring for? And again, we're talking about, when we, when we talk about the souls of our brothers and sisters in Christ. As I close, I, I, I want to just read the, the first two verses of chapter 5. This is just kind of like this ongoing book. But I think it orients us to where we need to go as we contemplate chapter 4. It says this, Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know what they are doing, that, that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. It's really easy to get frustrated with this world. And then it's easy to say things we ought not say. And do things we ought not do. And in the midst of a noisy and broken world, Ecclesiastes encourages us to quietly contemplate God and His truth. And it encourages us to share our lives in God's truth with others and may God help us to do that for His glory. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank You for Your Word. Lord, I thank You for Jesus. I come to You in His name. There's no other way to come. He provides us access to God. Because of His righteousness, His perfection, His death, His resurrection. And so we come to You as needy people. We want to find ourselves satisfied in Christ, but we also acknowledge that we need community. We need a place where the weak can say that they are strong because of Christ, because of His people. And so, Lord, would You remind us today of the priority of the community of God's people. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.